All right, what's up? It's episode 23, Pain Points of Wealth and Wall Street's Gone Bananas. In a crazy twist, we've got hedge fund managers being taken out by Reddit, traders, and chat rooms. What's going on? And it goes back to one of our old sayings here, pain capital management. Wall Street's made up of ordinary people trying to do extraordinary things. We're going to break it down for you, talk about exactly what happened with the GameStop trade, what to make of it, what to do with your portfolio in light of all the market speculation. And we're going to talk about Bob's renovation. I know you care about it, his house in Florida. But more importantly, what if that has to do with your financial plan? Let's hop to it. We got a great show for you. Start the music. Welcome to the Pain Points of Wealth, the podcast that addresses the pain points that come with creating, growing, and sustaining your wealth, giving you a multi-generational perspective from three pains in a pod. Bob Payne, the boomer, Chris Payne, the millennial, and Ryan Payne, the generation somewhere in between. You know, Rye, I think that's the uh, one of my favorite lines ever is that Wall Street's made up of ordinary people who think they can do extraordinary things. At least they want to convince you they can. And, you know, when you think about a hedge fund, right, the whole idea of creating commodities and options was to hedge the risk in your portfolio. Instead, these ordinary people get a pot of money together and then they try to gamble it away as quickly and fast as possible. All I can say is that I'm really glad that we're not talking about Tesla this week. But, you know, I think the one thing that the street is forgetting is that, as we often say, if it's in the news, it's in the price. Well, that's exactly right, right? I mean, it's no secret the GameStop was doing poorly. In fact, the stock was down over 90%, right? The market had already priced that in. So to bet against a stock that was already at a low, low price, well, it's kind of an amateur move. But I think, guys, it's not a secret on Wall Street. We've known hedge funds have been a horrible place to invest now for a decade. I mean, if you look at the performance of hedge funds in aggregate, they've averaged like 1.1% a year for the last 10 years, whereas the S&P 500 averaged like 13% a year. And I know I'm cynical, but I suspect after the great financial crisis, they couldn't really cheat anymore, meaning they couldn't trade on inside information like they could before because regulation came down. So I feel like now that they can't cheat, They just have to go out there and gambling with your money, which really makes them no different than someone in a Reddit chat room. Well, you know, one of the hedge fund managers, I remember back when the financial crisis hit with John Paulson, he made a lot of money shorting the mortgage market and kind of got that right. But then the very next year, he put all that return into gold and lost half his money in six months. Yeah. At the end of the day, it just comes down to making a huge bet. And if you're right, well, then you're the master of the universe. Everyone thinks you're really, really smart. But if you're wrong... Well, I guess you lose all that capital, but at least you got paid because the fees in those hedge funds are exorbitant. You know, but right, the fact of the matter is, you know, these Reddit traders, it's going to end poorly for them, really badly for them as well, because I've seen over my 45 years, 46 years of observing the markets, investing in the markets, there's been a lot of times where people have tried to corner a market and they think if they work in, you know, collusion with each other, that they're going to be able to corner a market or, you know, like, force a company to a stock price to go up. You know, like the Hunt brothers tried to corner the silver market. They lost all their money. The Duke brothers in the famous movie, <laughs> Trading Places, tried to concentrate at orange juice futures, ended up losing all their money. These people, they're willing to lose all their money, evidently. But guess what? The market's going to accommodate them very quickly. Well, you know, what the funny thing is, is that you've got an abundance of capital. You know, businesses and the consumer alike have a ton of cash. 
but they're putting all this money in a scarcity of trades when you know there's other places that have a scarcity of capital, places like small caps or even international that are trading at very low multiples right now, and they'll probably perform with the reopening of the economy. Well, I think the funny thing is, just go back a second here, is the fact that these Reddit traders beat the hedge funds at their own game, <laughs> right? They literally beat their hedge funds at their own game. But to your point, Chris, you know, it comes down to the fact that there's so much cheap money around the world just sloshing around, right? If you look at the money supply, it's up like 27%. That's the biggest jump in money supply in 40 years. And of course, if people are sitting on all this cash, of course, that money is going to seep its way into the stock market. And to your point, Chris, when everyone's putting their money in the same place and you have a huge abundance of capital, well, we've learned in the past, that's a recipe to actually underperform. It's kind of like being one of a thousand bankers in a town lending to one person, right? I mean, it's just like the opportunity gets bid up to a place where it's not reasonable. All right. That's absolutely a great point. You know, when you have scarcity of capital over abundance of capital, you would think smart investors would put their money in a place where the opportunity is the greatest. But instead, we see a concentration of capital in megatech stocks and IPOs, and now lots of money going into SPACs, right? There's nearly 300 SPACs are now seeking deals with $90 billion in cash. Meanwhile, Chris, we've got an acceleration of the profit cycle, which means that there's going to be a lot of opportunity for earnings growth and profit growth, and that has to go in favor of the cyclical companies. Right. So cyclical being things like energy, consumer discretionary, materials, things of that nature, things that will really benefit from the opening of the economy, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you're going to see where these companies were in a profit recession, right? So they're priced accordingly. Now the market's looking out saying, hey, this is the place to be because you're able to get growth of earnings, which is what you really pay up for. And it makes sense, right? When you have a uh, scarcity of profit, you know, money gets concentrated in a few companies. That's why we had the FANG, right? We had all these companies that were having great earnings and they did have great earnings, but now you're paying 35, 40 times earnings for these companies where you have international companies and value companies that are selling cheaply on the market and have good dividends. That's the place to be right now. Well, you put this in plain English because, you know, price to earnings, <laughs> profits, what does it all mean? I think it means like old school over new school, right? Last year, it's no secret that most of the money was made with these big tech stocks, right? If you're Amazon, you cleaned up last year because everybody was ordering from home. And of course, that speaks to businesses that essentially do the best when we're staying at home. But now what you're going to see, and it kind of just comes down to its relative performance, right? If you, if you had a horrible year last year, it's easier to improve on that, you know, but kind of like in track, right? In track and field, Bob, when you're running a really fast time, it's harder to beat that time. If I run a four-minute mile, it's harder to run 359. But if I run an eight-minute mile, it's easier to go down and maybe run a six-minute mile the next year just because the first mile is so lousy. Now, no offense to anyone who runs an eight-minute mile, but the point is you have a low hurdle to beat if you're an energy company because energy got creamed last year. No one was driving. No one was flying. And this year, when everyone starts to drive and fly again, when the economy reopens, well, that means those numbers are going to be huge you know, versus a hot tech company that already had great earnings. Yeah, but here's the thing, Rye. Everybody buys the story, right? You're hearing about innovation. Innovation is going to change the world. Well, it's already happening, but you're paying up for those earnings. It's kind of like what happened in 1999 and 2000 when you had these companies selling these exorbitant PE ratios, right? They were selling at these ridiculous valuations, like Cisco, for example, was selling at 200 times earnings. And sure, the story was right, right? And all these stories came true. 
Everything that the tech companies promised in 99 came true, but they didn't come true for 10 or 15 years. Meanwhile, the stocks didn't do anything but go down. So it's, you know, really what makes sense here is you've got to make sure that you're investing in good companies and valuation and get expected return. So you buy the stocks, right? You don't buy the story, right? The story can stay the same, put it that way, but the story may not be recognized now in some of these growth stocks until 2040. Well, you know, go back to what Chris said. Let's not talk about Tesla today. So let's talk about Tesla today. <laughs> you know, it's like Tesla has this huge opportunity. And you're right, it's probably 100% correct, right? We're all going to be driving electric vehicles in 20 years, and they're probably going to corner the market in batteries, and they're going to have all these other great services that complement their core business. But the point is, it's all being priced in today. It's kind of like back in 99, 2000, everyone talked about how you're not going to need your TV anymore, right? In 2000, the internet's going to take over. We're going to watch our computers. We're not going to watch TV anymore. They were right, but it took 20 years. We're just cutting the cord now, 20 years later. And I think that's the point here is a lot of these great technologies, well, they are going to come to fruition, but it's going to be years from now. And in the meantime, that's all been priced in in the short term which says if you're an investor right now, buying a lot of these hot technology companies, buying a lot of these hot IPOs, it's probably not going to end well. Like Cisco Systems, Bobby mentioned, it's still not back to the price it was 20 years ago. That's crazy. Yeah, well, that's a really good point, Rob. I mean, just think about energy, for example. 20, 30 years from now, I guarantee you, we're all going to be using less carbon, right? But you know, in the next 20 to 30 months, guess what? We're going to be out there driving more, right? We're all going to be vaccinated. We're going to be flying more. We're going to be going on cruise ships. Hey, Chris, have you booked an EV cruise ship yet? Is there anything like an electrical vehicle cruise ship? Or are they going to be burning carbon? Well, you know what? There's a, a, most cruise ships that are actually powered by electric, but that electric is produced by big diesel generators. So technically, yes, I have booked an electric cruise ship, but it's backed by diesel. And that's the reason. As we're recording this podcast today, oil is $55 a barrel. It was negative $37 a barrel this time last year on that ridiculous trade, that future trade. So it went from negative $37 to $55 a barrel. The market's telling you the economy's reopening, cyclical companies are going to do well. The place to be isn't where you were in the last 10 years. You've got to make sure your portfolio is positioned for the next 10 years, and it ain't going to be what worked yesterday. Yeah, Bob. So sum it up. Look, these hedge fund managers, that's not the smart money. These Reddit traders, well, that's probably not the smart money either. But those pain boys, what they're talking about, that's the smart money. Hey, this is Ryan, Bob, and Chris. And if you like our content, you find our content valuable when it comes to wealth planning, understanding the markets, understanding how finance works. Well, please hit that like button, subscribe to our channel. We're trying to grow it, trying to get the good word out, get our pain ideas out there. And if you have any topics you want us to discuss, anything you want us to cover here on our podcast, please leave a comment below. Let us know what you're thinking. We love the discourse, and we're always looking for new good ideas for content. All right, boys, it's the tipping point. We pinpoint the pain point. Of course, that's P-A-Y-N-E, having the biggest impact on your wealth right now. And Bob, you know that never-ending renovation project going on in your Naples condo that we've been hearing so much about that you invited Chris to go see, but I haven't been invited yet. But that's another story altogether. I thought we could take that as a great metaphor for financial planning. And you know, no one knows more about renovation right now than you, Bob, just like in the thick of it with contractors, making it the most awesome place on earth. You know, Ryan, we, Chris and I both are aware that you have a certain expectation of lifestyle and we're just trying to get it to that level where you'll be comfortable coming down to visit. 
That's the right attitude. I think that's a polite way of saying, Ryan, you're not invited. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think making Ryan very comfortable is just like, that's everyone's got their eye on the prize. That's the correct way of thinking. Well, the thing is, I can tell you guys doing any type of renovation work is expensive and you've got to be careful that, you know, you get the best discounts you can. So you don't want to hire 10 contractors to do 10 different jobs because then you're paying 10 different people a retail price. You want to try and get kind of a wholesale price by getting one contractor to do all the work and, you know, get focused on the overall costs. And it's no different than when you're working with several different financial advisors, right? You have your assets spread around because you think, I don't want to have all my eggs in one basket. That's not a good idea when it comes to cost. That's a good point that about costs. I think too, you know, one of the other things that you have to look at is what the internal cost of your portfolio is. So like, for example, most funds that you own have what's called an internal expense ratio. So that's one thing you want to be very conscious of about is looking at reducing your costs in your portfolio because any money that you can save in cost is money made in the market. Yeah. And it's like, there's a lot of different costs, right? There's the external cost, the internal cost. And to Bob's point, it's like you may have accounts at lots of different places and you think you're diversified, right? I hear that all the time. Like, well, I don't want to have all my money with you because you know I want to make sure I diversify and get a diverse amount of opinions. But what happens is you overcharge yourself because let's just say, hypothetically, you have a $100,000 account with one advisor. Maybe you have a half a million dollar account with another advisor. Well, you're getting priced as a small client versus a larger client if you aggregate your money together. And then to your point, Chris, then look at your internal expenses and reduce those. Like That's a huge positive impact on your portfolio. And it's something you really need to be aware of because cost is a big deal over time. That's a good point about cost. I recently looked at a portfolio of a prospective client and we had gone through all of their expenses in their portfolio. And they actually had a variable annuity that was they were being charged if you add up all the expenses, the yearly admin expenses, the cost of the funds. They're paying almost 4% a year. So to overcome that 4% expense ratio, you end up having to take more risk and you're shelling out more money that you didn't necessarily have to to get the same return in a low-cost portfolio. And it makes a lot of sense to me, Chris, because it's like Ryan said, it's not just the hidden expenses, the overcharging yourself by having your money spread out that way, but you end up with overlap. You end up owning the same thing in a lot of different accounts. I remember back in the 70s, I had a client who was working for Sperry, Sperry Rand, if you guys remember that company, no longer around. But, you know, he had a Sperry Rand stock in his 401k. He owned Sperry Rand stock in his personal account. He had five different personal accounts. And every different firm, he bought Sperry stock. His compensation was in Sperry options. So he thought he was well diversified because he had 12 different accounts, but they all had the same investment. And that investment went to zero. So you live by the, the old adage, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. But if you have too many baskets, sometimes you don't know what the eggs are invested in. And a lot of times you have that overlap. And too much of a good thing, not always a good thing, especially when it goes to zero. Well, we learn that right now too. I mean, I see that a lot with a lot of these younger millennials that are getting a lot of these stock options in some of these IPOs that they're getting with some of these companies that have done phenomenally well. And then it's like, you know, let's go out and we'll diversify and we'll buy an ETF like these ARC ETFs, Chris. <laughs> we see them all the time where, you know, it's like the hottest biotech companies, a lot of hottest tech companies that have gone through the roof as well. And you're loading up on a lot of the same trade, right? Anything that's technology related, anything that's biotech related, like it's all trading the same way. And when you're making tons of money, the question is, when do I sell and diversify? And I'm finding that most people don't want to diversify right now. Like, you know what? I'm good. And just to bring Tesla in again, Chris, because I know you love it. I've talked to several investors right now that made millions in Tesla 
like their whole net worth in Tesla and they refuse to sell a share. <laughs> like that's crazy to me, but I think you're seeing that happen again and again. And what you don't realize is that the amount of risk you're taking there is huge. You know, I had that same conversation over my career with people that own General Electric, right? GE was selling at $60, $70 a share. It's now 10. It's been 10 for a long time. Had people back in the 90s that owned Cisco. Cisco was selling at 200 times, you know, current earnings. Stock's never gotten back to where it was. I worked for a great company called Merrill Lynch. They're no longer around. Their stock went under because they had to be acquired by Bank of America to survive because they lost $20 billion. So, you know, having too much of a good thing is not always a good thing. You might be enjoying the ride now, but you're not going to enjoy the crash. Well, it's hard because, you know, Bob, like you mentioned Merrill Lynch stock, right? That stock was around for 90 years plus. And if you look back historically, you can put into any time in history before the great financial crisis, of course, and you would have said, well, anytime the stock goes down, it goes up again. And you would have been right, right? Where's the argument to diversify your money if you know this stock over a 90 year period? was an awesome stock to own. But meanwhile, all you needed was one bad decision from some people in management to basically take down the entire company. Every company is failable to human nature, right? Just one bad executive or one bad decision about the marketplace. And you read about companies all the time and that any company that's been a fantastic company can go from good to terrible overnight. And then all of a sudden, the stock reflects that. That's really the essence of financial planning is making sure that you don't have that hidden risk in your portfolio. You know, any company, you're right, right? Any company can go under, can go to zero, can disappear, right? So it makes people think that investing is a gamble, but it's not because the market, if you're diversified with lots of holdings in the market, even if you have one or two companies fail, you're going to have other companies that go up tenfold, a hundredfold, thousandfold that are going to make up for that. So it's so important to have, you know, more than one holding. Matter of fact, we recommend having 10,000. So, you know, maybe that's a little too much diversification. I don't think so. I want to have enough money to retire on, to live on, and to pass on to my heirs and my, you know, cherished institutions. So, Dad, through this whole process of renovations, you're making a lot of big changes in your place. And at the end of the day, all those changes have to be up to code, right? At some point, you're going to have the building inspector come in and say, okay, Bob, I see everything that you've done here. We now need to make sure that all of this is going to pass muster. And the same thing applies to your portfolio. Is your investment strategy in line with what your goals are? You know, if you're planning on working for the next 10 years, is your strategy taking enough risk? Are you taking too much risk? Is your portfolio tax efficient? And lastly, are you saving and investing enough to be able to reach those goals towards financial independence? And I think that's the ultimate conundrum for the majority of investors is, am I taking too much risk or am I not taking enough risk, right? How do you know, Rye? I mean, how do you know? How do you know? Well, I usually just literally throw darts against a board. And then however I feel that day, that's the recommendations I give. Well, I looked at your portfolio the other day. I was kind of thinking that. (laughs) If you saw my portfolio, you might think that. No, I think it's common sense, right? The common sense is, we always talk about this, but you got to begin with the end in mind. And our industry is just so bad at giving real advice, right? We love to pitch what you should own in your portfolio, what might be a great growth fund owning in your portfolio, yada, yada, yada. It sounds so sexy. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really solve your problems. And the problem you're trying to solve for is like, we want to be financially independent at some point, right? What's the point of putting money away and saving if it's not going to give us the ability to live our life the way we want to? So you know, everything's reverse engineering when it comes to financial planning. Everything is about starting with like really painting a picture 
of what you want your life to look like. Is that like retiring early when you're 55? Or some of our clients who work to 75, they want to work forever. And then deciding like, how much money are you going to need? What's going to cost to fund that lifestyle? Once you know the outcome that you want, then you can go back and you can just start looking at what inputs you're actually going to need, right? Like how much you're going to need to save? How much growth do you need? And I love that story, Bob. We tell it all the time. But Shaquille O'Neal in his prime playing basketball was making a ton of money. And, you know, he was getting interviewed and they asked, you know, Shaquille, like you're making all this money, you know, you're in the prime of your career. Like how are you investing your money right now? And he said, I put all my money in T-bills. And the interviewer was like, what do you mean T-bills? I mean, that's what my grandma would put her money into. He's like, that's all the risk I need. And he's right. He didn't need any risk. So why take it? Well, that's the thing. I mean, we look at 60 different proposals a month and we're reviewing your portfolios right now. And what we see is that 90% of you are taking way more risk than necessary to achieve your goals. And when you're taking more risk than necessary, if you have that unforeseen bear market where it knocks your assets down by 40, 50, 60%, who's to say you're not going to panic and sell and not wait for the recovery, especially when you need to get that retirement red zone? So the important thing is understanding how much risk you're taking with your portfolio, how to reduce that risk. And it's not just risk, right? It's also taxes, Chris. There are ways where you can reduce taxes and that'll achieve your goals without having to go out there and step out on the risk curve. Yeah, tax efficiency is very important. I mean, any money that you're not shelling out in taxes, you get to keep in your pocket. Like, for example, if you're making a big income right now and you own taxable bonds, that's adding to your income. Whereas you could potentially own a municipal bond where the interest on those is federally tax free. That could save you a substantial amount in taxes. Or if you own mutual funds, owning ETFs is much more tax efficient because you have more control over the amount of capital gains tax that you pay every year. Right. Long story short is there's pro moves you need to make on your portfolio, right? Whether it's taxes, whether it's knowing the risk you have in your portfolio, but these are all issues you've got to address. This speaks to having a complete renovation of your financial assets to make sure they're aligned to achieve your goals. Bob, Chris, and I now have a collective 70 years helping individuals just like you with their planning and investing. This is literally what we do every single day. Everything we teach you here on this podcast, along with some due diligence of your own, can help you get ahead financially at any stage of your journey. But if you have over $500,000 saved and you want a more hands-on approach and guidance, you can apply for a free financial review. Simply go to www paincm.com slash financial plan or click the link below. We can put together a full audit of your investments, those high, high fees you're paying, tax optimization, put together a complete savings and income plan to ensure you're on the right path to achieving financial independence. Simply go to www.paincm.com slash financial plan to see if you qualify for a free financial review. All right, gentlemen, the hidden facts of finance, random financial facts that may surprise you or even shock you. Okay, Chris, the entire US stock market is worth about $36 trillion. Wow. The recent run-up in a few speculative stock names, like GameStop, only account for about 5% of the overall market. Not that big a deal. Yeah, that was last week, Rye. But based on this week's trading activity in those stocks, they make up only about 2% of the overall market. I'd love to be one of those Reddit traders that made something like $50 million. I hope they sold because they did. Man, oh man, let's talk about life-changing wealth from a $50,000 trade, but we can all dream. Bob, US brokers added at least 10 million new retail trading accounts 
and a shift to zero trading commissions late in 2019 unlocked a wave of activity that dwarfed even the wild days of the dot-com bubble. Hey, Ryan, I love it. 10 million new retail trading accounts. I love when people start investing in the market. They always start out by gambling in these trading accounts. And eventually, they get serious about investing and they come to paying capital management. So, you know, just like we had in a dot-com bubble, we had a lot of new people jump into the market thinking it was easy money to be made, finding out that investing can be fun if you do it the right way. Yeah, no, it brings in a whole generation of investors, which is very, very exciting and a lot of interest back to the stock market. Stock market's the hot place to be again. It's kind of cool. Chris, fewer than 40 companies compound over 20% a year for a successive 10 years, and they account for all the excess returns. That's not that many companies generating all the return. Well, right. Thank God we all have a crystal ball. We'll be able to pick out those other 40 companies for the next 10 years. But all the while, let's just stay diversified. This also makes you think why money managers can't outperform. They have to think about this. They have to pick 40 companies out of thousands of companies to get it completely right. That's a hard job. Bob, Apple reported a record $111 billion in revenue this past quarter, up 21% from a year ago. Apple now generates $50 million in sales every single hour. Right. This reminds me of when I met Steve Jobs way back in the 80s, and he had just been fired by Apple. He was working for Next Computing. Just goes to show you how smart these management teams are. They got rid of the guy who was responsible for creating the first trillion-dollar capitalization company. So $111 billion in one quarter. It's a record quarter. It's the first time anybody's done $100 billion in one quarter. Unbelievable. I take like one hour of those $50 million sale. I take 10 minutes of their sales per hour, and I think that'd be good. Chris, in 2000, Cisco Systems was called the most successful company in the hottest sector of the internet economy. It was selling for 130 years worth of profits. Less than Tesla's, again, Chris, Tesla's 200 years of profits today. At the time, there was a question about the stock's valuation, which gave the second largest market cap at the time after General Electric. Well, right. You know the old adage, history doesn't often repeat, but it does rhyme. And it's kind of funny to think Cisco never really returned to those high levels. I wonder if the same thing may happen to Tesla in the future. Yeah, Cisco never traded again as high as it did in 2000, 20 years ago. Just goes to show you whatever's hot today may not be hot forever. Bob, it takes 22 hours to go from New York to Chicago by train. To go from Beijing to Shanghai, roughly the same distance, it only takes four and a half hours. Well, that sounds like we really do need an infrastructure bill. I mean, that's ridiculous that you know it takes so long to travel from one city to the next in our country in our train system where China is just eating our lunch. So every time you're sitting in traffic and you see that 18-wheeler sitting in traffic next to you, you realize that China is growing faster. It's going to have the largest economy in the world much more quickly if we don't wake up to what's happening with our infrastructure. Amen, Bob. Well, another great show. If you enjoy our content every week, our insights about the financial markets, how you should be investing your money, please don't be shy. Click on that like button, subscribe to our channel, and as always, stay loose and keep an open mind. Thanks for listening to The Pain Points of Wealth. Hopefully, you found the ideas discussed in this episode valuable and useful for your own financial journey. You can find out more about Bob, Brian, and Chris's firm, Pain Capital Management, at BeBullish.com or through the contact information found in the description of this episode in your podcast player or app. Join us next week for another episode of The Pain Points of Wealth, brought to you by Pain Capital Management. 
Information provided on today's show is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. 